Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright. And first off, a confession. I have an oral compulsive habit. The medical name is Ornacophagy which is a terrible pronunciation, but it's the best I could do. Uh, me- medical professionals say it is part of a subgroup of OCD that includes pulling your hair out, biting the insides of your cheek, or picking at loose skin. It's stress and anxiety related, and then, as with me, it's become a habit that I'm completely unaware I'm doing it. It is sometimes described as a parafunctional activity, the common use of the mouth for an activity other than speaking, eating, or drinking. I am, of course, talking about the inane habit that I have and disgusting habit of nail biting. Very common amongst uh, children, and there are creams and the like to help get the, give a nasty taste to get rid of it, or psychological treatments. Many nail biters even reach a point in their life where they're sick of it and embarrassed by it and stop eating. Not me, I'm in my 40s and worse than ever. But why am I telling you about this? Well, we're about to discuss a new film called Swallow, written and directed by Carlo Mirabella Davis. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. And thank you for inciting my uh, my confession of my, my compulsive disorder, which I didn't know it was. Yes, I'm very thankful for you for, for, for sharing that. <laughs> and, and I think it's a wonderful introduction to talk about the movie. Indeed, indeed, and and and, and it will begin that 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 uh, introduction will begin to make sense as we get on. So, so first off, Swallow. Um, do you want to give a brief synopsis as to what Swallow is all about before we get into the sort of how you got to making it and what were the inspirations and the like? Sure. Uh, Swallow is a um, psychological thriller um, about a woman in an unhappy marriage. Uh, who develops uh, a ritual of control, uh, an unusual compulsion uh, called pica, which is the urge to eat dangerous objects. And uh, she must elude her husband's controlling family in order to discover the the secret behind uh, her new obsession. Do you want to say how and where people can watch the film? Oh, of course. So uh, the film is available um, to purchase or to rent uh, in the UK and Ireland on all major digital platforms. So um, everything where you can buy and rent something, it should be available. 
uh, released by uh, Blue Finch Films. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, what, what before we started recording, we were talking. You, you, you've been, in relative terms, I guess, lightly affected by the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic. But uh, do you want to just just touch on how how it has directly affected the release of Swallow, as a film? Yeah, I mean, I'm speaking to you from New York City, uh, where things are rapidly deteriorating. Um, everybody uh, who can be, uh, who can uh, afford to be, is on uh, uh, isolation, quarantine at home here. And we're just not getting uh, the uh, assistance from the government that New York needs in order to deal with the rapidly uh, increasing cases um, that are overwhelming the hospitals. So we're we're all um, uh, in a situation of concern here in in New York, um, and I hope everybody where where you folks are um, in the UK and Ireland are, are are if you can staying indoors and washing your hands. And I wish everybody uh, safety and uh, and and health as much as possible uh, during this unusual time. Mm. Um, in terms of um, the release of the movie, yeah, I mean we went from. Uh, about to release the film for a theatrical run um, in select theaters all across uh, the United States, uh, having our premiere and doing preliminary press and getting the word out to um, all of that collapsing as it became clear uh, that everybody needed to isolate to deal with this pandemic. So our theatrical run was effectively canceled. Um, as were a lot of the theatrical runs of uh, newly released uh, independent films uh, that are really worth seeing, like Rashad Ernesto Green's Premature and uh, First Cow uh, by uh, Kelly Reichardt and Eliza mm -hmm. Hittman's new movie. Um, and so, um, you know, it was, it was devastating, but also, um, luckily, IFC Films decided to release the movie um, on VOD simultaneously. So... Uh, I've been very gratified to see that there's a wonderful uh, celebration uh, of the film uh, on Twitter and uh, on VOD in the States, um, and very, uh, very pleased to see a lot of people um, embracing it as something that's helping them get through uh, this current situation. Uh, and there's been a lot of um, uh, fan art and, and enthusiasm for the film uh, that's been uh, circulating on social media. So. Um, I think uh, we were we were we were lucky because um, so many films have and film productions that are just about to start are unfortunately um, having to shut down and film festivals are shutting down and um, and I think it's absolutely the right thing for everybody to isolate um, and stay inside and I think that um, movies actually are a really important element that will help us uh, maintain unity and stay together. Um, and share uh, our common empathy and bond as human beings um, during this this time. From what I understand, um, this was this, the, the idea for Swallow, the, the the central character being someone that digests things you're not supposed to digest, is inspired by observing your grandmother and habits she'd formed. Correct. Uh, yeah, the film was inspired by my grandmother, who was a homemaker in the 1950s um, uh, in... Uh, controlling marriage, who develops rituals of control. She was an obsessive hand washer who would go through four bars of soap a day and 12 bottles of rubbing alcohol a week. Um, and I think she was looking for order in a life she felt increasingly powerless in. And my grandfather, um, at the behest of the doctors, put her into a mental institution where she was given electroshock therapy, 
uh, insulin shock therapy where they induced comas and a non-consensual lobotomy that they botched and she lost her sense of taste and smell. And I always uh, felt that there was something punitive about it, that in a way she was being punished for not living up to society's expectations of what they felt a wife or a mother should be and uh, for being different. Um, and I always wanted to make a film about that. But, um, but hand-washing is not very cinematic, or maybe it's becoming more cinematic because now we're all obsessively doing it. Um, but at the time, I remember seeing a photograph of all the contents of a patient's stomach who had pica uh, that had been surgically removed. And all these uh, objects were fanned out on a table, kind of like an archeological dig. And I was fascinated. I, I wanted to know more. I was so curious about what drew the patient to those artifacts. It almost felt like uh, something mystical, like a Holy Communion. Um, and uh, that's how the project began. How did that then begin to develop into the story? What, what, what's your process as a writer that, that takes you from, there you go, there's, I want to do something about my grandmother's experience and I want to, and I think I can use this, this disorder as a, as, a, as a vehicle to do it. So what, what's your process, as it were, for taking those ideas and then creating a story out of it? Well, after you have that sort of light bulb moment, which mm. can come at the oddest of times, you know, that's why I always keep a, uh, a notebook handy uh, to, to write down any ideas that come, because when they when they sort of um, fall from the tree, you have to be quick to, to you know, snatch the apples up off the ground. Um, and uh, I, you know, after you get the initial um, idea, I isolate and try to write as much as I can. I create a, a treatment um, where I outline uh, the general machinations of the plot. I'm very intrigued by narrative structure and also how to uh, subvert uh, narrative structure. And once I have a rough treatment, then I will sit down and write uh, the first draft. And if I'm lucky, um, there will be a kind of a transformation into total absolute focus and I'll lose my sense of self for like, you know, uh, 24 hours as I obsessively uh, pound the keys. Um, and, um, you know, writing in many ways is, 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 is a little bit like summoning a creature from the void. You know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of ritualistic. You know, you have to commune with your story. In some ways, when it's going really well, you become a bit of a steward to your to your story, to the character. It's the best when the character seems to be telling you what it wants, where the, you know, you're sort of uh, transcribing what the character's uh, internal cosmology appears mm. to be. Um, and when I wrote Swallow, I I was in upstate New York, and I and I, I it just sort of tumbled out of me in about three weeks, the first draft, and then it was years of rewriting. Um, my father always says that writing is rewriting, and I and I love that uh, I love that quote um, because it's true. You know, you have your first sort of um, uh, you know manifestation of the idea, and then it's a lot of tinkering and fine tuning. So that's that's how it happened. Um, and uh, in terms of the writing process, um, and certain things never changed. It's interesting from the first draft. Certain things remained the same, you know, throughout the years, and other things did. 
did alter. But it's a slow process, like uh, tending a garden. I was going to say, so how, I mean, given given one of the big inspirations was was your grandmother's life. How how did you sort of the I guess the battle to stay absolutely true to who she was, but also the need to create your 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 narrative fiction that works right. best for the screen. Well, I, I never thought of it as a, as a biography, you know, mm. it was more inspired by her compulsion and the situation she was living in. But I always wanted to create a fictional work because um, I wanted to have total control over the story I was telling. Um, and I felt uh, that I, I, I wanted to be able to explore the Pika compulsion as much as possible, which was not my grandmother's compulsion. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's why I say inspired by rather than based on. Got um, <clears throat> but I did get my grandmother's case study from the mental institution, which was a heartbreaking read. Um, there's one moment where for my grandmother to leave, she has to swear to the doctors uh, that she will up uphold the duties of a wife and keep the you know house clean and make have friends and you know um uh, uh maintain a, a, a functional existence and and you know it's it, she has to kind of beg them um and assure them of her of her allegiance to the the marriage and it's uh, it's a really heartbreaking moment that solidified a lot of my uh, desire to tell to tell this as a feminist uh, tale mm. um but um yeah but you know i i think uh, that's the interesting thing about fiction right it's like a it's like a tree that uh, you know the core of it um, you know may be fictional, but the 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 uh, what you decorate the tree with um, is is all uh, pulled from real life. You know that's the the, the dance between uh, uh, between fiction and trying to make fiction feel authentic. Now you you said that there was like a kind of tending of the garden and a rewriting where there were certain elements that stayed sort of almost like fixtures to the story, but what what ultimately became the main storytelling challenges for what eventually becomes Swallow that we see on the screen now? Um, well, it was interesting. I mean, one of the things they, they don't uh, always teach you in film school is the incredible importance of the producer-director uh, relationship. Um, uh, you know, and I was, uh, at the time, I was, I think I was, um, I was speaking to my friend, uh, fellow filmmaker Dagny Looper, who, and I asked her, I said, who are the best producers in the industry and she said uh, uh, Molly Asher and Minette Louie uh, but you'll never get them and uh, I was like okay well I'm gonna try and I wrote to Molly Asher um, and got her a copy of the script and um, she really liked it and and she came on board the project um, and began working with me um, on, on getting the film out into the world um, and then she brought on the amazing Minette Louie who um, also joined and the three of us became this incredible team of, of um, uh, you know, of, uh, of, of uh, uh, the three of us who were really devoted to the story and dedicated to uh, to bringing it to life. Mm. And when you have great producers, um, they'll give you great notes um, on the script and and they'll encourage you to pursue your vision and your passion. And they'll also reach out to uh, investors and try to get the film financed. So. Um, that was one of the big shifts was going from working on the, on the, on the film on my own for a while and then uh, being lucky enough to get uh, amazing producers like uh, Molly Asher and Minette Louie on board. Um, so that was a big transition. And then another big transition happened when we began casting. 
Um, Allison Twardziak uh, came on the project, our casting director, and she suggested the incredible Haley Bennett, who um, I think just delivers a tour de force performance in the film. Yeah. Um, and I knew from the script writing phase that I needed someone to play Hunter who had an incredible capacity for ushering the audience into their internal cosmology. Someone who had so much empathy and so much control over the micro uh, changes in their facial expression that they really could bring the audience along on this unusual ride um, and make the audience bond to the character and connect with the story. <clears throat> I, I, hadn't, see... I hadn't thought of it that way till you say it. And in, in a sense, it, it makes me think of like, of um, I remember the first time I ever saw Drive and the, you know, Ryan Gosling's performance is not about mm. overexpression at all. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moments in this movie with Hunter where she's, where there's no dialogue. Mm. And Haley Bennett has this incredible ability to, you know, tell whole narratives in all these uh, fleeting emotions that move through her eyes and through these these um, subtle changes in her facial expression, um, as well as incredible line delivery uh, and emotional emotionally powerful um, um, moments of expression. Um, but you 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 know I I knew that I really needed somebody who could who could carry the whole film on their shoulders. And the moment I saw Haley Bennett in Girl on a Train, I was like, oh my god, you know, she's perfect <laughs> for the part. And I. And I, you know, figured that maybe she wanted to do something that was kind of unusual and and uh, bold. And so I sent her a letter and I offered her the role. Um, and amazingly, she uh, loved the script and d decided to meet with me. And right away, there was this real meeting of the minds, this kind of um, mutual um, enthusiasm and inspiration. And I think we knew right away we wanted to tell the story together. And Haley was also an executive producer on the film, so she was extremely generous with her time and she just poured every uh iota of her soul into this project that's amazing now just as, as a sidebar not not that you would be aware of this but but yesterday i recorded a podcast called uh called five themes in feminist horror with um mm. with a film critic called orla smith who writes for a seventh the seventh row mm. <clears throat> excuse me and it was broken down into five themes, female monsters, final girls, motherhood, housewives revolting, and gaslighting. And each mm. each one was, was a pairing of films to help sort of illustrate the point. And you'd be pleased to learn that um, housewives revolting was a comparison between Bitch by Mariana Polka and Swallow by Your Good Self. Oh, wow. As part of the discussion on uh, on that element. And because it, it, it was because you, you, you reminded me that the because uh, you mentioned it yourself making a feminist horror film. And part of our discussion was about how, you know, it isn't always about there are there are men making feminist films. The other, the other one that's on the list for gaslighting is um, is, is Soderbergh's Unsane and and Lee Vanell's Invisible Man. Um so yeah, so that was it's just interesting to me. It was a real, a real develop, a real, a, a, what do you call it? Um, an expansion in my knowledge and awareness because it's kind of I think I was a bit narrow in terms of how I saw feminist film as being like something that you know made by women for women kind of thing. But actually, there's there's a, there's a there's there's clearly a lot more to it than that. And I'm an idiot. Um, well, no, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I'm very honored to, to uh, that you discussed the film in that other podcast. Um, but, you know, I mean, I was very concerned, um, as were my producers, about my male gaze affecting the story. Mm. Um, and uh, instead of 
just ignoring it um, and saying, oh, it'll be okay, which I think a lot of male directors do to their detriment. Um, my producers, Molly uh, Minette and I spent a lot of time talking about my male gaze as a potential problem and how to um, counteract it so it wouldn't affect the authenticity of the story. And I think that was really the right decision to, to, um, to focus on it and to discuss it and really uh, take, take it on. Um, and I was fortunate that so many incredible female artists decided to come on board the movie and make my grandmother's story their own. We had uh, an incredible uh, cast and crew. Two thirds of our cast and crew were women and all of our department heads were women. And um, it was really, uh, like I said, we really considered it to be a, a feminist film. And, uh, and I was so thankful that so many amazing people worked on the movie. Um, including my DP, Caitlin Arzmendi, who I think is just like every frame is a, is a Renaissance painting. Um, yeah, and, I was uh, going to say, I mean, she, she, she's done, she, from what I could see, she's worked on Cam, a film I've, I've, I've interviewed the director for that one, and, and it comes at night. Both, both films very visually distinct. So what were your conversations with Caitlin about what, what you were hoping to achieve with Swallow? Yeah, well, like I said, I was so incredibly fortunate that she decided to come aboard the movie. She's a true, uh, true visionary. Um, and uh, we both instantly connected about how passionate we were about Hunter's story, but also um, our fascination with um, uh, character psychology and how to elevate the subtext of a scene through camera direction. And that's what Kate is so brilliant at. Um, is using her camera in order to uh, hint at and underline the psycholo psychological machinations of uh, the, ca the main character. Um, and uh, just to give you an example. No, please do. Um, Kate had this wonderful idea to shoot the entire film with master prime lenses, which um, can capture things in this intense uh, textural detail. And a lot of people who have pica talk about um, the texture of, of things, the texture of objects. Okay. Um, and Kate and I also talked a lot about the idea of establishing a rigid vernacular for the camera direction, a strict set of rules about how we would shoot the movie that Kate then breaks at key emotional junctures in the film. So for an example, um, we uh, begin the film with a lot of locked down master shots and Kate will frame Hunter so that she's kind of lost in the frame or oppressed by the frame in a way. And then Kate will suddenly use um, shallow depth of field and an extreme close up or a close up during the moments when Hunter is hypnotized by the objects to really uh, create a stark difference so that we feel that we're suddenly in her um, in her internal uh, phantasmagoric uh, world or Kate will suddenly use handheld where we haven't used any handheld and it'll sort of shock the audience into feeling that there's a kind of a, a riff occurring um, in in this world and there's a there's a, a, a journey that Hunter's going on in terms of uh, uh, her rebellion from this controlling patriarchal environment. Kate and I also spent a lot of time collecting stills from our favorite movies, and we created a huge uh, archive of references that we were inspired by. I was also really fortunate to work with Erin McGill, our incredible uh, production designer, um, who has such an amazing uh, understanding of color and aesthetics and is a, a, you know, is a, a real, a really incredible um, artist um, and an unbelievable imagination. And she uh, uh, was very passionate about the idea 
that every object and piece of furniture in the film is an opportunity for storytelling because Hunter is actively decorating the the house the way she thinks her husband and his you know wealthy family uh, want the house to appear. Hmm. But then there's these little moments where her true self, her true um, aesthetic preferences emerge in an unusual and sometimes jarring way, like when she puts the red gels over the baby's room window and the red suddenly, you know, has this primal kind of powerful um, sensation to it. So um, so that was really interesting. Um, and if people watch the movie, they'll notice that Erin also did this brilliant thing where she um, she made all the furniture and larger um, decorative objects look like objects that Hunter might want to consume if they were smaller. Um, so take a look at that when you, yeah, when yeah, you notice yeah. the, the coffee table and the uh, the ornaments around the house. Um, and of course, our, our costume designer, Leanna DeBrosia, is so good at, at creating a psychological um, a journey for, for, for characters through what they wear. Now, if um, if your grandmother was the inspiration for the, for Hunter as a character, who who inspired Richie? He's one awful egotistical man. Well, you know, I mean, in in many ways, Richie is kind of an amalgam of mm. um, uh, my uh, of of male behavior, you know. Um, and in other ways, I was sort of inspired by Trump Jr., Don Jr. Um, there's a certain kind of um, desperation you see in Don Jr.'s uh, attempts to achieve, a, 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 you know, his father's approval. And, and there's this um, obsessive clinging to an alpha male persona that you see in those photographs of Don Jr. posing with dead animals in the woods, you know. And Richie, you know, in many ways reflects the kind of um, man who is grown up surrounded by privilege and surrounded by um, entitlement um, and he's someone who has been given a position through nepotism in his father's company uh, a, a position of power and he understands that this position of power is um, dependent on him you know uh, living up to his dad's expectations and he's so um, devoted to that kind of cult of, of alpha male persona and so terrified of losing um, that identity that he's willing to sacrifice anything to it, including his wife, who we see he also has, you know, moments of affection for. Um, and also there's that sort of toxic masculinity creeping out that, I guess, willful ignorance that men fall into um, where he doesn't see uh, and doesn't understand um, the tightening uh, chains that he's um, wrapping around. Yeah, around. no, he, he he plays the, the uh, like you say, there are the moments of affection which make you believe that the character has has does have empathy, but then there are just ex exact opposites where it, it's almost like affection is the only way of showing empathy, you know, the idea of just sitting yeah, and listening. Yeah, and it's... Yeah, and the part is beautifully, uh, wonderfully played by Austin Stoll, who 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 infused it with such nuance and and such specificity, clarity, and and heart. Um, mm. And the two of them together, uh, Haley Bennett and Austin Stoll, uh, you know, it, are mesmerizing to watch um, because there's so much subtext that they're so good at hinting at. They're so good at, you know, um, the the cracks forming, you know, on the facade of of of, of normalcy. Um, yeah. And, in, and and key support to that is is Catherine and Michael Conrad. 
um, the 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 sort of <laughs> the the alpha male in chief. But I was it's it's more fascinating. It was more fascinating for me how how the mother's role is sort of unfurls in 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 sort of the build up to and then out the other end of what is the crisis for the family, in a sense of she does the whole behaving mother in law, and then it flips on a kind of cruel, almost like social profiling, as if to say, you don't look, you know how look you are, just keep your head down, and it'll be all be all right. You know, the, the idea that she might feel okay is irrelevant because financially she's sorted. Yeah, I mean, I think Hunter, you know, is constantly being told this is who you are, this is what you want, this is what will make you happy. And she begins to look around and see that every aspect of her existence is being controlled by this family. And that she begins to see that they don't really see her as a human being, that they see her as more of a vessel for their legacy or, a, you know, an augmentation. I, yeah, I, exactly. To, no, I wrote, I wrote that, that. That was a word I wrote down, that she is just a vessel for them. It's almost like if, you'd, if, if they could have bought her in a shop, they would have done. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and Richie does meet her in a, in a, in a, in a shop. I mean, there's this idea <laughs> yes, of, of course, uh, of course. <laughs> her, yeah, that, you know, that he, they see her as an augmentation to his life, that he's the main character and that, and that she, um, you know, is kind of an ornament like the ornaments that she consumes. So a lot of the film's also about, you know, bo uh, body autonomy and, and that Hunter's compulsion, although dangerous, um, is a way of, for her to reclaim her control over her body and her, her persona. Um, and to ultimately, uh, it serves as a catalyst for her to discover her, her, her true self and what she really wants and, and rebel from this environment. Um, but, um, you mentioned the mother-in-law, and I think um, Elizabeth Marvel does such a magnificent job of um, walking the the, the tightrope that that uh, Catherine Conrad exists in, because she is part of the patriarchal structure and she's enforcing it a lot through the movie, but she's also being oppressed by it as well because she's also a woman, so she can also understand and see what Hunter's going through, and yeah, is also it's, it's an amazing help her it's as well, and it's. Yeah, it's a mixture. It's an amazing, it's an amazing amalgam for, for 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 that character to have to uphold. Is like she she she's obviously done. You know, she's given us Richie. She's, which means that she's been in for the long haul, and and I'm guessing she's seeing herself in 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 Hunter at the beginning. But then, like you know, you're gonna have to book up. Now there are two scenes that 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 stand out. Now obviously, in a film where somebody's swallowing painful objects, you can. Im I think the listener can imagine there's going to be a few scenes where you're going to be uncomfortable as as a viewer while you kind of experience along with Hunter what what she's going through. But for me, one of the most sort of I guess painful scenes is early, is early doors, and it's the it's the restaurant scene where where we begin to see how pointless Hunter is to a to their relationship and as as a person and. And and, yeah. and the kind of decision in in that, the decisions you took in that scene because like, that's that's a a one a great example I think of what you were talking about earlier where everything on Haley's face and her actions without words speaks so much more than if she said look I've got a real problem with this um, and, and and you know culminating with the crunching of the ice um, can you talk a bit about that the the, the formation of that scene. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that scene. And I think Haley is incredible in it. And the cinematography, I'm so proud of uh, as well. I think Kate uh, Arzmany does an amazing job there. Um, and yeah, the point of the scene is that it's supposed to be a celebration 
um, for uh, the news that that uh, as uh, Richie says we're pregnant you know he kind of takes credit for it for it um, and it's supposed to be a celebration but um, through the course of the scene you see this kind of shift where um, at first um, the family is encouraging of Hunter. They want to hear a little more of her. Richie wants her to tell a story from her, her past. Um, and as she begins to open up and tell the story, she's suddenly um, interrupted and dismissed and sort of abandoned um, by a, another topic that the family wants to discuss. And I think it's a heartbreaking moment for Hunter because she realizes that um, they really don't care about you know her life and her her experience and her perspective but of course in that moment she as you say she um you know she represses it uh, she represses the 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 desire to uh you know to 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 uh challenge what's happening um because she understands the power structure and she's she knows everyone's telling her to be happy so she represses it and it comes out she swallows it her, her true feelings in a way um, and it comes out in the form of this compulsion, this interest she has with the the um, oscillating glass of ice in front of her. And I and I, if people listen carefully, uh, Michael Kurahara, our sound design, did a wonderful job with um, uh, all the little noises that she hears when she pays attention to the ice, the sort of cracking fortress, frozen fortress um, sanctuary within the within yeah. No, the it's ice it's an amazing. She, it's like she she the ability to try and disappear within yourself. While at the same time drawing attention to yourself, <laughs> right? And the ice chewing becomes her first kind of rebellion, and it is her way of um, of standing up to the family. It's just in a in a in a in a uh, it's like a pebble that starts an avalanche. Mm. Now, fast forwarding a bit, and and uh, and I'm conscious I don't want, I don't want to get into too many spoilers or anything, but um, just thinking of that first time a, for want of a better expression, an awkward object is is digested. Um, it's sort of it, the way you the way you present it is it's almost like a dangerous act of communion if that makes sense the way that the mm. way that we see it we see it happen because i guess i guess in 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 hunter's mind the the, the character there has been a huge build up to this moment as you could under, as you could well understand so it's it's almost like this this, this i have to savor this pun intended um in the same way that any sort of, and this is going to sound like a really crass example, but I remember I remember reading um, reading about how, and this is this is a terrible example, how serial killers are often underwhelmed by the post experience of that first kill, <laughs> and they go into a depression because it wasn't what they what it lived up to. Now, obviously, that's not the same thing, but in in a sense, I imagine the first time you swallow something sharp, there is a bit of logic going on before the compulsion takes over from any logic. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I wanted each, um, each object, each, uh, uh, emotional experience of the object to be like a memory in a way that each object has its own emotional texture. Mm. Um, and Hunter's first experiences with this, this marble and if you listen to the soundtrack again, you can kind of hear the distant noises of the beach, you know, waves crashing and birds wheeling overhead, people laughing. And I, I like the idea that the marble represented a kind of um, nostalgia, memory of earlier happiness. 
hmm. now lost from her childhood. And and there's something prismatic about the marble. You know, it, it refracts light. It's it's like a talisman in a way. It's got a magical aura. And so um, that to me seemed like, a, you know, uh, the perfect first object for her. And then, you know, each object, like I said, has its own different emotional uh layer or texture to it. So the uh, the thumbtack is much more of a, of a dangerous liaison. It sort of calls to her, you know, like a siren call. Hmm. Um, but one of the things which I'm so proud of is the way that you can see all these different uh, counterpoints and, and range uh, re- transformations that Hunter goes through within the experiences. And I don't want to give too much away. Of course. Um, but she is also surprised by the emotional effect uh, that the that the compulsion has, and we also tried to create um, experiences before each of the uh, moments with the objects, a kind of trigger experiences that um, that send her into the into the comfort of the of the ritual. Um, so uh, that that yeah, so that each each moment becomes distinct. But you know, um, like any compulsion, it's about um, so much more that's going on in her in her environment and also um, in her past and 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 the you know the compulsion becomes a focal point but it's a, it's a jumping off point for this um, this uh, struggle that she's uh, taking on. And what what do you, what do you think um, Haley Haley brought to the character which you couldn't have it, during all that time when you were developing the screenplay? What did she bring to the character? You're like that's what I was looking for in my imagination. Oh yeah, there's. I mean, there's so there's so many details and nuances. I mean, I'll give you an example of one of them. Please. Um, you know, when we arrived on set, Haley uh, Haley was like, "I'm gonna do a voice," and I was like, "Oh, oh, okay, let's let's hear it." And she did this voice because that's not actually her voice. She's she's you know um, putting on a voice to play Hunter. Mm. And the moment I heard it, I was like, "Incredible! This is perfect." Um, and you'll notice that um, by by Haley innovating that idea of having this voice, um, that it allowed her to get this uh, to sort of have a marker of Hunter's uh, journey because the voice subtly changes throughout the whole film, um, uh, so that it's the voice is, is is different by the end than it, than it is in the beginning. Hmm. Um, and I thought that was an incredible um, uh, innovation. Well, look, let's remind people then how and where can they see Swallow. Yes, so um, like I said, uh, the wonderful uh, company Bluefinch has released the film in uh, in the UK and Ireland, and they can see it on um, and buy it. Um, I think right now the UK and Ireland is the only place where you can currently buy the film because in the United States we're we're still renting. Um, so you can do that on um, <clears throat> uh, all major digital platforms: Amazon, iTunes, Apple TV. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, search for the film, and you'll you'll hopefully find a platform you can watch it on. And I hope people uh, get a chance to see it. It's a movie I'm very, I'm deeply uh, proud of. Do I make you happy? I'm the happiest man in the whole world. I feel so lucky. You're not mad at me, Mom. We're pregnant. About what? I just want to make sure I'm not doing anything wrong. You couldn't do anything wrong, even if you tried. So what did you do for money before you met my son? Retail, mostly. A lucky break. 
I'm just real grateful. Fake it till you make it. Are you happy? Or are you pretending? How does it make you feel when you swallow something? I just like the textures in my mouth. Textures in my mouth. It made me feel in control. In control. Uh, I'm right here. I just wanted to make you happy. You get back here with my kid! I did something unexpected today. I hope it's a film that makes people feel seen. I hope it's a film that, um, you know, it's a real emotional roller coaster in a way. It's a movie that, you know, can frighten you, but it can also make you laugh. It can also make you cry. And I, I hope it's a film that um, increases empathy and fights prejudice and makes people, uh, you know, feel that they're that in some way that uh, they can connect with the with the story. And I think we're at an interesting time right now with genre films where there are so many incredible directors who are who are um, taking making films that exist in various genre spaces but imbuing them with really intricate uh, character psychology and uh, social issues that are really important like um, Babadook, Get Out, uh, Hereditary and, and, and many more. So um, I hope Swallow is considered part of part of that uh, that movement. Well no I would certainly I would certainly put it in that canon and congratulations on your directorial debut. Um, and it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on the Britflix podcast. Thank you so much. Um, I, it's been such a pleasure uh, talking with you, and I and I so appreciate your your fascinating uh, questions and uh, this discussion. And and thank you to your listeners for uh, tuning in. Alan Parker said, "Sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know." if we're waving or drowning. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina. 